If you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We're going to continue uh, the, the story that deals with the vision of the tree. Now to give a little recap of where we've been so far in this part of the story, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has now had this second vision. So it's a, a new vision. And in this in this second vision, he actually shows his lack of understanding of who Yahweh is, of who God actually is, in the very fact that when he's looking for an interpretation of this vision, he goes to everybody else except for Daniel, the prophet of God. He goes to everybody else and goes to the wise men and asks them, and only as a last resort, when they were able to tell him nothing about the interpretation of his dream, only then did he go to Daniel. And then what we learned about last week, we, we, we saw that there was a vision and Daniel gave an interpretation of that vision. The vision was that there was a vision of this great tree, a tree that grew up into the heavens, was able to, to cover the land and, and give shelter to the animals and, and provide for the animals. It's a great tree. But then an angel comes down and says to chop it down. Chop it down, this huge tree. And then and finally to bind the stump. And it mentions in this section of the, of the, of the dream that he says that the, the, the tree would go from having the heart of a man to the heart of an animal for seven years. And, uh, and that's, that is a weird, you can see why Nebuchadnezzar struggled and why he stayed up at night with this kind of a vision. Daniel gets the opportunity to reveal this and he said that the great tree is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are this great tree. You, you, you have this great kingdom, and, and, and this, this huge kingdom has a vast influence over, over many, many people. But, just as the angel who came down and said, chop it, he said, you are, would lose your kingdom as well. You're going to lose it. And it goes on from there, where it says to bind it. That when you bind the stump of the tree, the idea is that you're keeping it alive so that it will repro- reproduce once again. And so basically, he says that, that the kingdom would be restored to him. But only when some certain things actually happen. So uh, let's take a look. If you have Daniel 4 uh, by now, look at verse 25, and we'll review the last couple verses of what we looked at last week. But in verse 25, this is what we read. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you, uh, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times, talking about seven years, shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. Um, Inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. He's saying... Until you come to this point in your life where you realize that, that there is someone who is, who is way above you, Nebuchadnezzar, who actually rules. You think you rule, but there is one who rules over it all. And God says, until you realize that, I'm going to take your kingdom away from you. And that's why we find in verse 27 from last week, we looked at this. Daniel warns them and, and uh, basically tells them, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you better get off your high horse. That's the Dave Grave version, right? It's a, a loose translation, right? You've got to get off your high horse, and you better start seeing God for who he is. You better start seeing yourself for who you are. 
And if you do, you start, you'll start seeing others for who they are, and you won't start seeing yourself as above others. You're going to start treating the poor a lot differently than you do right now, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you listen to what God is trying to tell you through this vision. If you do that. And, uh, and you would think that after all that Nebuchadnezzar had seen already, I mean, he watched the, Daniel's friends go through the fire and survive. We, we, after all that Nebuchadnezzar's been through, you'd think he would say, oh, I better listen to this vision, right? Oh, I better listen to this vision. I better, I better do it. And God gave him a time frame. Didn't tell him how long it would be. But let's look at what happened. So uh, skip to verse 28, and we'll pick up where we left off from last week. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of, uh, the, of, the, of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power, for the honor of my majesty? There's one word that would describe the attitude that he expressed there. And I don't think I even have to tell you what it is. What's that word? Pride. Oh, talk about pride. He was taking credit for something that God had done. Now, you might say, humanly speaking, well, look what he did do. I mean, he, he advanced his kingdom. His kingdom grew. It thrived, economically speaking. They ex- expanded their, border, their borders. Militarily, they were able to conquer other nations. And so they just kept expanding and expanding and expanding. And so from a human standpoint, you might say, wow, that's, that is amazing. I mean, isn't, can't a guy have a little sense of accomplishment? Right? But look what he's saying. Look what I have done. What is he forgetting when he starts to point all this? Notice, you'll, you'll see how many times he uses in the verse something that refers to himself. The first person singular. The king spoke saying, Is not this great kingdom that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Look what I did for me. Look what I did for me. He's taking credit for things that God had done. Remember in the first vision, God explained to him, hey, you know what? I set up kingdoms. I tear them down. Here's what's going to happen. In fact, I'll tell you, the next four or five sets of kingdoms, this is, this is my plan. And you think you're doing this? Right. And, uh, and so there's a difference, by the way, between seeing, having a sense of, of, of what we call pride which is really a sense of accomplishment when you accomplish something, and then, there, and then pride. And what's the difference between a sense of accomplishment and, and pride? A sense of accomplishment comes when something that is actually your responsibility, if you follow through with something, for example, uh, uh, we just had the New Year's. Many people make New Year's resolutions. How many of you made some kind of a New Year's resolution? Two of you. Wow. Okay, then forget that illustration. <laughs> Everyone's just giving up on New Year's resolutions, right? That's okay, because I was going to say only about 8% are still doing it two weeks into it. So, But when you do make a, a resolution, you say, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to exercise three times a week, or I'm going to do this, and you come up and you actually do it, there's a sense of accomplishment. Of, of Why? Because that's all within your control. But the moment you start taking credit for something that someone else has done, that's pride, right? Pride, Paul... Paul says pride comes in two, two categories, vain conceit and selfish ambition. Because, and both of those have to do with self-centeredness, right? 
And so, what is vain conceit? conceit? Vain conceit is empty conceit. It's when you're proud of something that someone else has done. Now, I'll tell you what. Who gave Nebuchadnezzar his mind? God did. Who made him intelligent? God did. Who gave him even his sanity? God did. Who can take his sanity if he wants? God can. And, and so here we have this totally self-absorbed man. Now, there are several people in our congregation that are involved in a program going on this week and, and, uh, called Susicle, right? Any, how many people here are somehow involved in Susicle, right? You see some hands all over. Some are in it. Some have been doing the, 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 uh, the clothes and the, the backdrop and props and different things. So in the spirit of Dr. Seuss, I'm going to share a story. Is that okay? This is a story about Yertle the Turtle. Some of you, some of you already know the story. And you say, oh, yeah, I see where he's going already. But uh, I want to read just a little bit of Yertle the Turtle for you and, uh, and, and uh, see how we can do from here. So this is by Dr. Seuss, Yertle the Turtle. And we read, On the faraway island of Salamisand, Yertle the Turtle was king of the pond. A nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. There was plenty to eat. The turtles had everything turtles might need, and they were all happy, quite happy indeed. They were until Yertle, the king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. I'm ruler, said Yertle, of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. With this stone for a throne, I look down on my pond, but I cannot look on the places beyond. This throne that I sit on is too, too low down. It ought to be higher, he said with a frown. If I could sit high, how much greater I'd be. What a king. I'd be ruler of all that I see. So Yertle the turtle lifted his hand, and Yertle the turtle king gave a command. He ordered nine turtles to swim to his stone, and using these turtles, he built a new throne. He made each turtle stand on another one's back, and he piled them all up in a nine-turtle stack. And then Yertle climbed up, and he sat on the pile. What a wonderful view. He could see most a mile. So Yertle the Turtle King lifted his hand, and Yertle the Turtle King gave a command. He ordered, oh, excuse me, I just read that a second time, didn't I? All mine, Yertle, uh, Yertle cried, oh, the things I now rule. I'm the king of the cow, and I'm the king of the mule. I'm the king of the house, and what's more beyond that, I'm the king of the blueberry bush and a cat. I'm Yertle the Turtle, oh, marvelous me, for I am the ruler of all that I see. Do you see some connections between Yertle the turtle and Nebuchadnezzar? It's kind of a funny way of looking at it, isn't it? But, but in reality, this is where Nebuchadnezzar was at. He wanted more. And, and he wanted to be able to, to lift himself up higher so he could see more, so he could expand his kingdom. He could, he could be the king of more. And since he accomplished that, he kind of let the success get to his head. I see another similarity in the story because did you also notice that in order for Yertle to reach the heights that he did, he had to step on the backs of other people. Nebuchadnezzar never gave credit to all of the backs he had to step on to get to his high position. Did he build the palace? No, he ordered people to build the palace. Right? He organized things, he structured things, but... 
he forgot what everyone else had done because it was all about me, me, me. That's King Yertle right there. I was going to say in a, in a nutshell, but in a turtle shell. That's Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's Nebuchadnezzar right there. In fact, um, let me read just a little bit more and see, uh, see how it goes from there. Um, I want to just read um, a little bit more. It says, and, and all through the morning he sat up there high, saying over and over, A great king am I. Until long about noon, then he heard a faint sigh. What's that? snapped the king, and he looked down the stack, and he saw at the bottom a turtle named Mac. Just a part of his throne, and this plain little turtle looked up and said, Beg your pardon, King Yertle. I've painted my back and my shoulders and knees. How long must we stand here, your majesty, please? And silence the king of the turtles barked back. I'm king. You're only a turtle named Mac. You stay in your place while I sit here and rule. I'm the king of the cow and the king of the mule. I'm the king of the house and the bush and the cat. But that isn't all. I'll do better than that. My throne shall be higher his royal voice thundered, so I'll pile more turtles. I need about 200. Turtles, more turtles, he bellowed and brayed, and the turtles way down the pond were afraid. They trembled, they shook, but they came, they obeyed. For all over the pond they came swimming by dozens, when families of turtles with uncles and cousins, and all of them stepped on the head of poor Mac. One after another, they climbed up the stack. And the story goes on. I'm not going to read the whole story, but you, you get this, this image. In fact, later on, he comes up with some thousand number and seven, because he has to rhyme with heaven. And, and that's, where, that's where we see him, from, two, from nine turtles to 200, and it goes on and on. But you know what? This is human nature. This is not new to Yertle. This is not new to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, if you keep your finger in Daniel, go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. We read this. Now the earth, the whole earth had one language and, and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. It goes on to say, to say, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. That they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and the tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Wow, that's what we find in Genesis. By the way, that word scattered, says, lest we be scattered, the verb form for that is usually translated fill, to scatter over the earth or to fill the earth. Do you remember what the great commission of the Old Testament was? Be fruitful. It means you have to be productive. Don't, don't waste your energy. You, Use it to produce something. Be fruitful. Multiply. Have descendants. Fill. Scatter. Same word in Hebrew. So I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they're saying, let's do this so that we don't obey God. Let's do this instead. And what was this? Let's build something big, something that's glorious, that we can make a name for ourselves and say, we did this. Look at this tower. Let's build it up to the heavens. God created a way to heaven, by the way. They wanted to create their own way. They wanted to do it their own way. Do you see the problem with that? It's, it's, 
ignoring God. It's taking God out of the equation. It's pride in something that we do with the power that God actually gave us. Paul had something to say about that in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he said, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you didn't receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Saying, the differences between one man and another man, between one woman and another woman, the differences between all of us is determined by whom? By God. So why can we, how can we even logically brag and boast about what we do when the only reason I'm me and I'm not somebody else is because God chose for me to be me? Does that make sense? What have we done that we could say, but this really wasn't given to me? No, everything is done because it's a gift from God. How can we brag on something we were given? Well, Nebuchadnezzar did, and so let's, let's take a look at what happened. So back in Daniel chapter 4, verse 31, let's read. While the word was still in the king's mouth... A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling place shall be with beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses comes to a point God says, that is enough. Enough, Nebuchadnezzar. Here, you're, all your talk about what you've done, that's enough. You think you built this? I'm taking it back. Right here, right now. You know, the worst part for, for King Nebuchadnezzar had to be the fact that he knew it was going to happen. To be told, guess what? The next seven years of your life, you're not even going to remember them. Done. You're going to wake up and realize seven years, Gone. How many of you would like to just all of a sudden wake up tomorrow and be seven years older than you are right now? Imagine that, right? I want those seven years, right? I, I, I want time to slow down as much as possible. And, uh, and so I want those seven years to be told, guess what? And he was, he was getting up there in age by this point in his life. In fact, he only lives between two and three years after this. And, and to lose those, those years of his life... That's what he's told. I think, too, it's kind of interesting that God says you're going to lose your sanity for seven years. Because seven is the number of Yahweh. Seven is God's number. He always uses that number to represent himself. That's why he created the seven-day week. And just one chapter, actually, I was going to say a few chapters, just one chapter earlier, what we find is, is... he is actually using God's number against him. And, and he says to Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he says, you guys are going to be, be put into the fiery furnace. They're so angry. I want you to heat it up seven times hotter. Like, oh, you're going to worship the God whose number is seven? I'll, look at my power. I'm going to heat it up seven times more. And God showed his power over Nebuchadnezzar, right? So God says, oh, you're going to use your number or use my number against me? No, no, no. I'm going to use my number against you. Seven years. Seven years. That this is what was going to happen to him. And let's, uh, let's read and see if it happened. Verse 33. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. 
His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his, uh, and his nails like bird's claws. He lost his mind. Totally lost his mind. Like it said, the heart of a human became the heart of an animal. In medical terms, that's called boanthropy, right? Boanthropy. Um, that's a medical term. But really all it is is a name that we put on a person who loses their sanity. Becomes like an animal. Um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to actually meet someone with boanthropy once. And uh, uh, it was a, a guy who was intelligent. He was rich, um, involved in church. And, uh, and he had gotten to a point, and he too was very proud. And he actually said to me at one point, he said, I believe that I have gotten so high up in, the, in Christianity that God's going to do something great with me. And he said, he said, I can't even think of the last time I sinned. I was like, you, you, God's got a lot more work to do on you, buddy. <laughs> if, if you can't think of the last time you sinned, then you don't know what sin is. It's not that you've gotten better. And, but no, no. In fact, he even came to a point where he said, I believe I'm going to be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation because I, I have reached that level in my faith. And then I was with the senior pastor when he received the call from his wife and said, I don't know what happened to my husband, but he's in the backyard eating grass and barking. Boanthropy. Um, um, can you imagine the humility after all this pride? And you bring yourself up, and then all of a sudden, you're the guy who ate grass and barked like a dog. Imagine that. And uh, it's, it's a humbling thing. And God says it did it. Got to the point where his hair got so long, I mean, they, they probably couldn't control him enough to give him a haircut. So his hair would get long and matted so that it looked like eagle's feathers. His fingers, they, no one could get him to still enough, long enough to, to cut his fingernails. So his, his fingernails became like, like talons of a bird. Seven years. And this is the king of the greatest nation on the planet? It's humbling, is it not? It's humbling. I want to read just a little bit more of the story. <laughs> because it, throughout the story, Yertle doesn't he doesn't listen to Mac and he actually starts yelling at Mac for even suggesting that that he shouldn't be on his back and have all those people on his back. And I just want to read the last the last couple paragraphs. But while he was shouting, he saw with surprise that the moon of the evening was starting to rise up over his head in the darkening skies. What's that, snorted Yertle? Say, what is that thing that dares to be higher than Yertle the king? I shall not allow it. I'll go higher still. I'll build my throne higher. I can and I will. I'll call some more turtles. I'll stack them to heaven. I need about 5,607. But as Yertle the turtle lifted his hand and started to order and give the command, that plain little turtle below in the stack, that plain little turtle whose name was just Mac, decided he'd had enough, and he had. And that plain little turtle got a little bit mad. And the plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped. And his burp shook the throne of the king. And Yertle the turtle, the king of the trees, the king of the air and the birds and the bees and the king of the house and the cow and the mule, well, that was the end of the Turtle King's rule. For Yertle, the king of all Salamisan, fell off his high throne and fell plunk in the pond. 
And to save the great turtle, that marvelous he is king of the mud. That's all he can see. And the turtles, of course, all the turtles are free. And turtles, and maybe all creatures, should be. And so here he is, brought down though, humbled. Isn't that what God did to Nebuchadnezzar? God just totally humbled him and brought him to that point. For how long? Seven years. And he wakes up. Verse 34. And at the end of the time, I... This is is Nebuchadnezzar giving his own testimony. This isn't Daniel telling what happened. This is personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the right place, to heaven. And my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? He got it. He finally gets it. Nebuchadnezzar finally comes full circle. In fact, this is, this is literally full, 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 full circle. If you remember what he said all the way back in verse 3, he started with his testimony. and He begins with, by saying how great are his signs and how mighty are, uh, are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. He states that up front and now we see how he actually got there and it's repeated here at the end as he says that he has an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. That's what we read. And it's at that exact moment when he realizes all of this that he realizes that God is God and he is not. He realized who he was. And then this happens, verse 36. At that same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom... My honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Notice he's talking about it in a different way. It's not, what. look what I did. It was restored to me. It was added to me. It was gifted back to me. That's the right attitude. When you understand who God is, you realize what a gift every day of life is. Every accomplishment you do, it's a gift from God. Amen? And we realize the giftedness because of what God has done. Reverse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. And there we have the message. All of those. You walk in pride, and God is able to put them down. As far as applications, just a couple of things that we need to change the way we think. Number one, God accomplishes His will, both in heaven and on earth. Does He not? God accomplishes His will, both in heaven and on earth. Nothing escapes His rule. Nothing. In fact, Jesus... When he taught us to pray, 
part of that prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer, is what? That has to do with this. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have one God whose will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we grasp the sovereignty of God, it changes the way we see everything. The second thing here is we only have two options. We can either humble ourselves or we can be humbled by God. God didn't tell Nebuchadnezzar how long he had, but he gave him a year. He had a year to humble himself. At the end of that year, he actually came to the height of his pride. But no matter how proud you are of whatever it is you've accomplished, and I don't think anyone in here has accomplished as much as Nebuchadnezzar, so I don't care how proud we may be, God has the ability to humble us. Does he not? In fact, we read, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. You think, well, what about all of these people that get paid a lot of money to mock Christianity at night, I mean, on the late night shows, as they mock Christianity, they mock belief in God, they mock God himself. Even them, yes, even them, well, one day their knees will bend. And their tongue is going to confess, Jesus is Lord, and I'm not. Wow. Now, we, we could point to them really easily. We could point to, the, to the, the scoffers and the mockers. But even as Christians, sometimes we forget what God has done, even in our own salvation. And we can come to a point in our life where we get to, to the point where we start feeling like, well, at least I'm not, I'm not those guys. At least I'm not like them. And we forget, if it wasn't for what Jesus Christ did on the cross, where would we be? No different. We're no different. Why can we, why do we boast on something we've been given? Right? We're just beggars who found that there's someone offering free bread, telling other people where they can go find free bread. We're not providing anything. We don't, we can't save anybody. Right? So we have to be careful too, and I think that's why Jesus himself gave us two ordinances. One of those ordinances we're about to participate in in just a few moments. And the reason why I think that Jesus gave us this ordinance is because we forget. That's why a key word in everything we're going to read about is the word remembers. To remember. Why? Because it's human nature to forget. I think I've stated this before, but did you know that the most used command in Scripture is to remember? And the second most used command in Scripture is do not forget. Top two commands in Scripture. Why? Because as humans, we forget, and what do we do? We start taking credit for what God's done in or through us. Today, as we participate, I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead, and uh, the uh, deacons, rather, to go ahead and come forward to the front row. But as we, as we prepare for communion, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the nature of, of our pride and to remember that everything we are as Christians is only true because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. That's what the elements here represent. We have two elements in communion. We have one which is bread which represents the body of Christ and the other is the cup which represents the blood of Christ, both of which emphasize the emphasis of what Christ did for us on the cross. 
So today, as we participate in communion, I'm going to ask you to take some time as we pass out the elements and just reflect. Take that time and reflect who God is and what He did for you and how that changes the way we see everything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives some instructions to the Corinthians about communion. And this is what we read in verses 27 through 32. Paul writes this, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But he who drinks, uh, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. It's like this is an opportunity for you to make sure you're eating and drinking in a worthy manner. What does that mean? We can't be worthy of the, of the, the body and blood of Christ, right? We're only worthy because he has made us clean through his own body, through his own blood. Amen? And so as you have the, the bread and as you have the cup in your hands, I want you to think about the body and the blood of Christ and what he did for you. And that, that takes away the pride, doesn't it? It takes away the pride that gets us so steeped in sin. It takes away the pride when we realize that the only reason I can even have eternal life, the only reason that I can escape the consequences of sin is because of what Jesus Christ did for me. And that's what communion is all about.